and welcome to the Switchboard podcast. Switchboard is a one-stop resource hub for refugee service providers in the United States. With the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, we offer resources, learning opportunities, research, and technical assistance on resettlement-related topics. My name is Margaret Gibbon, and I'm Switchboard's Program Officer for Learning and Knowledge Management. Today, our topic is diversifying your client base, increasing enrollment of asylees, special immigrant visa holders, and others in ORR programs. To discuss this topic today, I'm so pleased to introduce Erica Bori, Senior Technical Advisor for Economic Empowerment at the IRC. Erica supports the implementation of economic empowerment programs in nearly 30 communities across the U.S. She brings a particular focus on workforce programming, including youth and adult programs, career pathways programs, innovative models of vocational ESL, and more. Erica, thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by clarifying what we mean when we say diversifying our client base. In addition to refugees, who are some other ORR eligible populations that programs may not necessarily be reaching? I think, you know, in particular, uh, there's a lot of value in connecting with the asylee population and the special immigrant visa SIV population. Um, I think many refugee service providers are relatively familiar with asylees and SIVs, but might not be actively serving them in all program areas. And in particular, um, I think it's important to remember that even if asylees and SIVs um, have engaged with programming perhaps early on in their eligibility period, for example, shortly after asylum was granted, they may still be in need of or interested in services three or four years later. And making the effort to really think about those populations within your community and think about how you might connect with them can be beneficial. Great. That makes sense. And so we know outreach strategies are key when looking to boost program enrollment. I'm wondering what suggestions you have for programs working on developing an outreach strategy to connect with some of those potential clients. Well, I think there are a number of things that are worth thinking a little bit about. I think, again, many refugee service providers are very accustomed to building partnerships with other stakeholders in the community to help with outreach. And so there's a real opportunity, and I think it's important to think strategically about the types of partnerships that you are building for the purposes of outreach. So I think we often do a really good job having conversations among sort of traditional, you know, resettlement agencies and other refugee service providers, but making sure that we're also connecting with um, faith-based organizations, parent groups that might be associated with schools where there's a high refugee or immigrant population, um, with ethnic community-based organizations, uh, and other types of organizations that are often working with refugee and other diverse communities um, over kind of a long period of time. And so really building those partnerships can be important. I think another thing that is important to think about is remembering that, you know, if we kind of step back and we think about the refugee services delivery model, many refugees in particular are sort of very automatically enrolled in programming as a part of their resettlement process, which is great. And it enables refugee serving organizations to really work with those families very closely. When we're talking about trying to engage um, asylees or SIVs or refugees, again, particularly if they have been in the U.S. for a couple of years, We really need to think carefully about the value proposition that we are putting out there for these individuals. Um, They're not automatically being enrolled in programming. Rather, we're asking them to participate in programs and services. And so I think it's really important for service providers to think about how we're framing the programs and services that we're offering. Are we doing a good job in really making sure that the potential client sees the value of that program? But if you're trying to connect with someone who, you know, has been 
here for a couple years and might already be working and they've got, you know, busy lives and family and all those types of things. If you're trying to engage them in, for example, career programming that you think might help them move into a higher skill, higher wage job, it's really important to be concrete about the value that that program um, will provide to this person because we are asking people to opt into services. I think the most effective outreach strategies recognize that people at all levels of the organization have a role to play in outreach and referrals of client populations. So while it is true that a direct service staff member might be responsible for making program flyers and making sure those program flyers get out into the community and perhaps hosting you know, an, uh, an orientation for a specific program, when we think about people who might be at the managerial or above level, those individuals are also really important in building the types of partnerships and sustaining the types of partnerships that ensure that when we do go knocking on the doors of other partner organizations and that we're receiving a warm welcome and that we really have a collaborative effort to help refer clients between two organizations. In addition, I think that it can be helpful, particularly for a new program or a program that's really trying to make a pivot to uh, recruiting a, a new population or a population that you haven't engaged too much. It's helpful to think about whether or not it makes sense to have a dedicated outreach position, maybe for a period of time, maybe for the first three months, maybe for a year, and really tasking a staff member with some of that targeted, focused, time-consuming work to ensure that uh, you're reaching those uh, those potential new clients and helping them learn about the program and bring them into the fold of services and programming. Absolutely. And I'm hoping we can talk next about what programs can do to communicate their capacity to serve diverse populations. So whether that's in proposals to potential funders or conversations with some of those potential partners, I'm wondering how you recommend that programs describe their capacity in a way that doesn't focus exclusively on serving refugees. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I think, you know, we sometimes become so accustomed to talking about our programs with the sort of very inside language that's very specific to the refugee resettlement world and, and refugee serving programs, that it can be helpful to step back a little bit and think about how we might want to talk to other potential partners or funders about the work that we're doing so that they can really envision um, more broadly the types of clients that they might be able to refer over to our program or better understand the capacity that we uh, as an organization have. Um, so one of the things that I think is really important is to think about the various characteristics of the refugee, asylee, and SIV population that you are serving in your programs and think about how you might describe those characteristics in language that is, is more commonly used by other service providers. So for example, um, I think we all know that, that many of our refugee, asylee, and SIV clients uh, are English language learners. That term, English language learner, is one that has resonance across many different stakeholder groups. So if you're talking to adult schools who you might be hoping would refer clients, if you're talking to your workforce system, if you're talking to uh, perhaps a K-12 through school district that has parent programming, that concept of English language learners is immediately going to translate. And you saying that you have expertise for example, um, in delivering programs for English language learners, that's immediately going to resonate. Um, I think another uh, another thing that's worth thinking about, particularly when talking to funders and perhaps trying to identify additional resources to support the work that you're doing, it's important to think about not only the language that is used to describe 
the population being served, whether that's English language learners or perhaps you would use a, a phrase like low income individuals. It's also important to think about communicating the results that you achieve in a way that makes sense. So I think, again, many of us are probably very familiar with the specific types of outcome metrics that we use in our ORR funded programming or other similar programming. But it can be helpful to take a few minutes to step back and think about how you might communicate those types of outcomes in a language that, again, is understood and recognized and commonly utilized by other types of funders. Make sure that you are doing all that you can to speak the language of your potential funder and to really kind of communicate your capacity in the language that they understand. Sure. And, and so to think about an example, when you say using language that might be more familiar to a broader audience, we're thinking about things like, you know, maybe not saying self-sufficient at X number of days and, and using other language like that. Am I understanding right? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe pull that example out a little bit further. Self-sufficient at 180 days, it comes out of our, our national matching grant program. If we look at the world of public workforce development within the Department of Labor, you know, programming funded through the Department of Labor, that's not a metric that's typically used. Rather, there is a focus on kind of a collection of metrics that look at things like job placement, median quarterly earnings, and whether or not an individual has earned credentials. Those are sort of the, you know, the most common out Outcomes that are looked at. And so if you have a program, um, a workforce development program um, that you're trying to sort of, again, talk to new partners about, uh, whether for referrals or other types of relationship building that you're engaged in, it can be very helpful to, again, translate the words you're using, the language you're using into the language of your target audience, right? Doing that work for them so that they don't have to spend the time trying to decipher kind of, well, what does that mean in the, the way that I typically understand outcomes? And it can very easily help that new partner, that new system see the, the success that you have had in working with asylees, refugees, SIVs, and individuals who have very similar barriers to employment. Yeah, got it. That definitely makes sense. And because we've touched a bit so far on metrics and thinking about data, I'd like to close with another question about data, which is really to ask, you know, what role do you think data can play um, in this effort to reach more diverse client populations? I think there's a couple of ways to, to answer that question. One is, as you are having conversations with partners and other stakeholders, it's important to remember that, that not everybody is perhaps as familiar with data around refugees, SIVs, and asylees in your community as you are. Um, so we can't make the assumption, for example, that our federally qualified health clinics or our workforce development boards or our K through 12 school districts are necessarily as familiar with um, that data as you are. So I think that that's a really important starting point. You know, if, for example, a school district doesn't really realize that, um, you know, they might have 5000 refugee SIV and asylee parents in their district, they might not have thought too much about whether or not there are specific services that they might want to try to connect those parents to. So when we when we show up at the table at the beginning of those conversations with some of that data, I think that can be a really helpful and important first step. 
I think another thing um, that again can be can be helpful is that data related to program outcomes. So I, I think all of us do uh, you know work very hard to to try to capture output and outcome data from our programming, and having that data in our back pocket when we're talking to partners, especially partners who we are seeking referrals from, is a really important um, step. For example, if you have a particular uh, refugee and SIV and, and asylee serving career pathway program and you have, you know, 75% of your participants are earning uh, an industry recognized credential and you then go to an ethnic CBO or a faith-based organization or a workforce, uh, you know, a career center in your local community and you're able to say that, if I'm on the receiving end of that message, that makes me a lot more excited about potentially referring a client over there because it's clear to me that this is an effective program. I think the last thing I would say uh, about data is connected to that broader conversation about funding. I think you know many of us um, are perhaps looking for additional funding to help supplement the work we're doing so we can really reach that diverse client population. And data helps us build our good needs statement. Um, data about the effectiveness of past programming helps us communicate that we um, are in a good position to implement high quality programs that will achieve meaningful outcomes and impact for the community that we're trying to serve. Absolutely. And I know this is just a short conversation and, you know, we're really just maybe getting the tip of the iceberg when it comes to increasing program enrollment, program sustainability as well. So I'm happy to say that Switchboard would love to help in that process for any ORR funded organizations who are, you know, taking on this task. And so if you support an ORR funded program and you're thinking about your outreach strategy or ways you can improve your use of data, for example, um, don't hesitate to reach out to us for technical assistance. That's at switchboardta.org slash request. And with that, we will wrap up this podcast episode. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Erica for sharing her expertise in our conversation today, as well as to listeners for tuning in. Uh, as I mentioned, you can visit Switchboard online at www.switchboardta.org, where you'll find an extensive resource library, our e-learning course list, a form to request technical assistance, and much more. So if you've not done so already, I would really encourage you to sign up for our newsletter so you can get our updates. Thank you so much again, Erica. Great. Thanks for the conversation.